SJW, Antifa, Antifa, all right, all left, snowflake, white nationalist, cuck, emoluments clause, Pepe the frog, Kofefe, the rise and election of Donald Trump to the presidency of the United States hasn't just changed the political landscape of the world, it's changed our language, it's changed how we talk to each other. There are new labels, new disses, new shade being thrown in all directions. So many new words, I sometimes feel lost. And then I go on Reddit and wow, I don't even know if I speak the same language as some of these people. On these subreddits like the Donald. Maybe it's because I took the blue pill or I'm a cuck or a, or a snowflake or a libtard. I don't know. By the way, I don't even know what that means, and I don't know if it's acceptable to say on the radio, because that's how fast and dramatically our language is changing. Since I started working on this channel a couple of months ago, I've been called a cuck a bunch of times. So I got to thinking about the meaning of this word. The word first appears in English in the 13th century, adapted from the old French word for the cuckoo bird itself, cuckoo. Shakespeare uses the word 28 times. In Shakespeare's telling of the Trojan Wars, he uses the word literally, the cuckold and the cuckold maker are at it. In Coriolanus, he uses it metaphorically. Peace is a great maker of cuckolds. The image of a cuckold throughout history has been a man with the horns of a buck. Shakespeare uses this a lot. The devil is like an old cuckold with horns on his head. This comes from the mating season's battle of European stags, in which bucks with four-foot antlers compete for mates and the losers lose their ladies and their horns. To this day, if you want to call another man a cuckold and you live in Italy, just stick your fingers on your head like horns. In the 16th century, the female version of the word emerges, cuckwin. That's a woman whose man is going behind her back. This version of the word never acquired the same potency as the male version, but it shows how cuck could evolve beyond cuckold. Really, what we're experiencing now is a cuck renaissance. Cuckold is an ancient insult. And the word's been used in English for a very long time to emasculate other men. However, in the last two centuries, it's been pushed out of the mainstream by other words, mainly gay slurs. Cuckold begins to come back around with the porn revolution of the last 50 years, with cuckold fetishes. And then came the term that would break cuck out from 4chan, cuckservative. In early 2015, at the very start of the Republican primaries, Jeb Bush, a symbol of polite mainstream conservatism, would start being called a cuckservative on 4chan's poll board. In the minds of conservative channers, a cuckservative is a sellout, a conservative in name only that doesn't challenge political correctness and is weak on issues like immigration. In summer 2015, the term busted out of the internet when Rush Limbaugh and then Breitbart News embraced the word and started firing it at candidates they didn't like. This all started to magnify when Donald Trump, then a million to one underdog in the race, started using language like low energy to describe his Republican opponents. This term, low energy, I said he's a low energy individual. We do not need in this country low energy. Then with comments on hand size, these kind of insults started being flung by even mainstream conservatives. And you know what they say about men with small hands? Look at those hands. Are they small hands? Decorum disintegrated and cuck became a favorite. In the end, it's really no surprise that cuckold became a conservative insult. Insults come from insecurities. People who feel insecure about how they look will call other people ugly. Men insecure about their masculinity 
will call other guys gay. You can become homo, no mo. For the last eight years, right-wingers had to watch this guy run the country. They feel like cuckolds, and so they call everybody else cucks. Thanks to the YouTuber Shots Fired for that informative and dispassionate take on the word cuck. What's up, y'all? This is Word Salad, a show from CGSR 88.5 in Edmonton, and I'm your host, Dr. Russell Cobb. Today, we bring you an episode I'm calling Trump Talk. Our show is in two parts. In part one, I interview English and film studies professor Dr. Jamie Barron about the word privilege. Privilege is something we keep talking about, and it's changed so dramatically from the time that it first appeared in the English language. So that's our segment, it's called The Salad Bowl. And then part two, in the dressing, I bring you Trump Talk. Here we listen to a veritable smorgasbord of words that have infiltrated for good and bad in our past in the past year. Stick with us. Today in the Salad Bowl, my guest is Jamie Barron, who is a friend and associate professor in film studies at the University of Alberta. Did I get that right? That's right. Okay, good. Jamie holds a PhD in cinema and media studies from UCLA, and her work has been published in numerous journals, including The Velvet Light Trap, Discourse, Spectator, Eludemos? Yeah. <laughs> it's a gaming journal. A gaming journal. Yeah. She published in a gaming journal. Okay. And her first book entitled The Archive Effect, Found Footage, and the Audiovisual Experience of History was published by Routledge Press in 2014. And she is the founder and director of the Festival of Inappropriation, an annual international festival of short experiment, short and international, an annual international festival of short experimental found footage films. Is there anything you want me to add to that? No, that's good. That sounds good. Okay. All right, we're moving on. Sound levels good. Um. All right, so. Uh, Jamie, it's a real privilege to have you here today. <laughs> it's a privilege to be here. <laughs> yeah. So, right, well, before we get into what that even means and whether or not that's appropriate anymore, I have to ask you a question. Do you feel privileged? Yes. Yes, I do, yeah. actually. And how like tell tell me more about how you feel privileged. Like what what is privilege to you? Well, I've been thinking about this. I was sort of thinking about what the opposite of privilege is. And I think its opposite is different in different contexts. I mean, sometimes it's opposed to sort of a privilege rather than a right, you know, mm -hmm. something that you're not guaranteed, that you don't necessarily deserve. Um, but I feel like in the discourse that I hear most right now, it seems to be opposed to kind of merit and hard work, right? Something that you get that you didn't necessarily earn through hard work or, you know, the things that you have done, um, but that you just get. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think for most people, probably they're, where they are in life is a combination of privilege and merit, ideally. I mean, depending on your circumstance, but I mean, I feel like for me, it's a combination of those things. I had certain advantages that helped me get to where I am. I also worked very hard to get to where I am. So, um, you know, I think that I do feel privileged, but I don't think that everything I have comes exclusively from privilege. And I think that that's a, 
I mean, it's an interesting tension, right, to think about sort of what one earns as opposed to what one in, is given, right, at least to begin with. That's a really good point. I mean, that's maybe that's part of the rub there when we start to get into, sorry. <coughs> I'm going to do that again. <coughs> I'm doing that again, Jarrett. Okay. Um, that's a really good point. I feel like it's the tension there between what you've earned through your own grit and your own work and what is, was given to you is part of the rub. I mean, when we sort of talk about, about privilege, um, the interesting thing is we have this mythology that we live in a meritocracy. And so whatever we do have is something that we, we earned through our own hard work. And f- inverting the notion of privilege from something that one should be proud of having because it's an honor that was bestowed on someone to a, a right that you were given but you didn't ask for and you basically didn't deserve cre- creates a lot of issues. Um, so I just, I was really struck with with you. Um, I was kind of thinking about these things in a very incoherent way and um, I saw that you posted something on Facebook and I just I, I thought it was really interesting. It was a real thought provoker, and it was sort of a lot of ways I I made me think about doing this show. Um, and if you don't mind, I'm gonna quote you. Sure. I quote you. <laughs> <coughs> okay, you wrote. Um, I'm starting to feel extremely ambivalent about the word privilege, and uh, I'm inserting myself there. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> It, ha- it was or has been useful in getting people who hold a relatively high degree of power in the comparison to others to pay attention to certain things they take for granted. However, it seems to be turning into a means of shaming those people for having privilege and therefore not being a real leftist or progressive or whatever and somehow betray- betraying those without privilege. How is this useful to anyone? The only thing it might accomplish is to alienate people who are willing to recognize their privilege, but not to feel repeatedly shamed about having it. If it's a day without without privileged women, then good. Uh, privileged women have a lot of working buying power. Withholding that might make others pay attention. Women who can't strike, that's totally fine too. Enough with the relentless, self-righteous, and self-indulgent critique. I'm tired of all this holier-than-thou garbage. Okay, I love that. <laughs> that was a Facebook yeah. post. <laughs> that was that, not yes. an academic treatise. Of course. <laughs> okay. Yes, and um, like a good Facebook post, it's got a like, it's got a streak of of righteousness in it itself, right? Which I, I totally appreciate. I do that all the time, and um, then my blood pressure goes up, and then somebody <laughs> says something that offends me, and then I'm then I'm shamed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> But no, on a, on a more serious note, like I, I, I wanted to ask you, because this is sort of one of the things that struck me when I read that and I read the article that it was based on, which was about how the women's, the women's, um, the International Day of Women and the action that went along with it, which was the day without women or women's strike, was something that primarily privileged women were were. A, a, able to participate in. So that being said, you note that there's something called privilege shaming. Is that something you've encountered before or how did you come up with that idea? Um, 
I mean, I don't know if I came up with it per se. It just seems to be part of the current discourse. I mean, it goes along with um, a lot of responses to what I see as acts of solidarity with, you know, people of color or LGBT people, you know, I mean, whoever sort of might need solidarity at a given moment. It seems like there's been frequent rejection of that, of those gestures of solidarity, or at least really kind of immediate um, critique that I feel very ambivalent about. I mean, on the one hand, I understand the need to critique um, gestures by people in a position of privilege when they're attempting to show solidarity and perhaps do it in such a way that in some ways replicate certain hierarchies of power and, and that sort of thing. On the other hand, I feel like particularly at this particular moment, um, there's much worse enemies out there than, for instance, white people who are not fully woke to the experience of people of color, right? I mean, I think it's important for people to be self-reflective about their privilege, but I feel like there's a risk of alienating people who do want to do something useful to use their privilege um, to work for social justice for everybody. And sort of the immediate and relentless critique of that, I find potentially very counterproductive. Right. I really understand that. And I and I wonder um, why, I totally agree with you, but I wonder why this pointing out of privilege when the history of the very word privilege has been something that it is an honor to have. Privilege was bestowed from the church or from aristocracy on certain people. And it felt like, I mean, this is, I'm going back to the origins, the very origins from French and Latin of privilege, that it was something that you were, uh, that, that, yeah, that one would be happy, honored to have. Now we live in a moment where privilege is something that we have to deal with. It has to either be checked or it has to be, uh, what else, when you do with your privilege, you, you check it or you... At least you, acknowledge. You acknowledge it. Uh, you you work against it, right? You, you Maybe you work to, or you work uh, at least to... Uh, um, I, I mean, I don't even know. I'm not being very articulate about this, but I just, I, I just wonder why, why and how we got to a point where pointing out privilege becomes something that is um, something hard for people to deal with. I mean, I think your reference to the aristocracy actually is important, right? Because I think that, you know, within a democracy, we at least have this ideal, and particularly on the left, right, that everybody is supposed to be equal, treated equally. Um, everyone's supposed to have the same advantages, at least to start with. And then based on that, then your hard work and merit can be mm-hmm. measured, right? Right. Um, right. But the idea of having something you didn't earn um, and benefiting from that becomes this source of shame and guilt. Mm. 
which on the one hand, I think it is really important for people to recognize their privilege, right? I mean, I actually remember when I first recognized at least parts of my own privilege. Um, okay. I mean, you know, there's many different kinds of privilege, right? I right. mean, I'm white, so I have white privilege. And I, this isn't, I'm, not, I'm talking more about class privilege actually right. at the moment. Right. Um, and I remember, I mean, I, I grew up in essentially a middle-class family, um, but I grew up raised by a single mom. So I was, you know, I had a very comfortable life, but I was sort of surrounded by people who had more money than I did. Um, certainly by no means poor, but I never felt rich because the people around me had more wealth, right? Um, and I also worked extremely hard in school. I was one of those students who just worked very, 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 very hard all the time. Um, and so, you know, I, I achieved, I gained certain things. Um, and I felt like it was because of my hard work, mm -hmm. right? That was my experience. Right. Mm -hmm. And then at some point, I believe when I was in college, um, you know, somebody pointed out to me that, you know, my parents had been, or my mom had been able to pay, um, you know, for, I grew up in the States and the, the public schools in our area were you know, underfunded and dangerous. Um, so, you know, I went to a private school and, you know, she was able to pay for that. And, you know, I had other advantages that a lot of people don't have. And, you know, it was it was a wake up call for me. It was like, wow, you know, I never really thought of myself as having class privilege, but I right. did, you know. And I think that recognition was important. And it's something that, you know, I think it's I have to continue to be aware of that, not everybody has that background and those advantages. I think that it allows me to understand other people's circumstance when it's not the same. I mean, I mean understand isn't even right, the right word I've been thinking about. I was listening to a podcast where they were debating the difference between sympathy and empathy and understanding and, I mean, sort of complex relationships right. that come out there. But, um, you know, to recognize that people come from different circumstances, um, I think, is really very important. Um, on the other hand... Being embarrassed and ashamed, I just what does that what does that do? You know, like that doesn't do anything. That that's that's where that's where I I I would like to go next because I think that recognizing that if you are privileged, you you can you owe your privilege to certain advantages in life, whether it be class, race, geography, whatever they may be. Achieving that that uh, awareness is very important, like you said. Uh, but then, then what? Mm -hmm. what? What What are you supposed to do with that? And that's uh, I think that's where I was really struck by uh, what you posted on Facebook, and why I really wanted to talk to you is I, I struggle with that as well. I actually come from a very as you're talking, I think a very similar background, and I see how it can cut both ways for people for example, that I grew up around, who really chafe at the notion that they were privileged. Mm. It really rubs them the wrong way. And, and in fact, it, it, like you said, it can, it can backfire, it can alienate people. And, and for example, you know, I, I know, uh, you know a friend I had growing up was, was uh, on my block. He was, uh, he was a twin and his, his twin brother died and there was a lot of substance abuse in his, his family. Uh, I remember they went through some really, really rough times. They were, I wouldn't say poor, probably working class. And he really wanted to leave, 
leave where he grew up. He was not allowed. He didn't have enough money to go out of state. And so when he when he hears people talk about white, he's white, white, um, <clears throat> lower middle class, probably. And so when he pe- hears people talk about white privilege, he gets really rankled because he's like, well, look at all the suffering I had in my life. You know what? How, how am I privileged? And then you have to have this difficult, long conversation about, yes, maybe, you know, there's lots of without without, again, being sympathetic to the things that he did suffer, but then also that you are afforded other advantages. And so it leads to a very long, complex and, and very awkward conversation. Right. Um, I can't remember what my question was for you, Jamie. Um, yeah, I remember what my question was. Once, but if we do acknowledge we do have certain kinds of privilege and we have that awareness and we have that sort of self-actual, it's not actualization, self-awareness, what are we supposed to do with it? Yeah, and I mean, I don't have a specific answer to that. I mean, I think that, I mean, for instance, with white privilege, I think it's been very important to me to recognize that my white privilege means that I am not racially profiled by the police, right? And that the people of color that I know are. And, you know, if they are stopped by a cop, they may very well die, right? Whereas, Mm. I mean, you know, the few times I've been stopped by a police officer, I was either given a ticket or told just to be more careful next time, right? Right. Mm -hmm. And that Mm -hmm. is based in white privilege. And that's an important thing to acknowledge. Mm. Um, And I think that that also... You know, leads to the important recognition that when there is some kind of protest or social justice action or something like that, that white people showing up, you know, allows us to use our privilege to potentially mm-hmm. protect people who are more at risk of violence at the hands of the police, for instance, right? Right. right. So I think there are uses for privilege, certainly. Um, I mean, for white privilege to stand up when a person of color might be afraid to and have greater reason to be afraid. That's really interesting. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I think there are certain circumstances when Mm -hmm. that's very much the case. Um, But, and, and in terms of class privilege, I mean, using, if you have have some money to donate to causes, you know, that maybe other people, they might want to mm-hmm. s- serve the cause in some way, but they don't have the time or money to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but Or voting. or Yeah, voting, absolutely. <laughs> voting for people who may make privileges a little mm-hmm. less imbalanced. Yeah, I mean, working for social justice mm-hmm. uh, for everybody, I think, is really important. And yet... I, I'm still worried. I mean, I was I was telling you about this. I was listening to a podcast talking about allyship, and people had different perspectives. It was a bunch of different mm-hmm. people talking about it. And, um, you know, at least one of the people was basically like, I have no use for allies, um, basically unless they're willing to step in front of a bullet. Um, and yeah, that, I was like, well, mm. and, and she was somewhat dismissive of pe- white people showing up for protests uh-huh. or calling their representatives and things like that. And I was just like, well, okay. I mean, you know, certainly if I was in a circumstance where somebody was being, a uh, person of color, for instance, was being uh, threatened, um, you know, I certainly hope I would try to use my white privilege to intervene um, at least as much as possible. On the other hand, I don't encounter that situation very often. Um, and 
I'm not sure that it makes sense to go looking for it. That seems like another kind of weird convoluted way to use one's privilege. Um, I don't know. I mean, so it just, I, I think, I think that we should use our privileges to try to, you know, work for social justice for the people who don't have it. But somehow the rejection of, of allyship from people who have privilege, um, I just, I find that very worrisome because I try not to take that kind of thing personally, but I think, A, it's very hard not to take it personally when you feel like you are trying to work for social justice for everybody. Um, and I think that there are lots of people who will just take it personally regardless, and those people will no, will no longer put themselves, their time, their money, their bodies on the line, you know? And right. so I just, it, it worries me that, you know, I mean, we're talking, we're fighting fascists at the moment. I mean, that's what, you know, like, I just read this article about, you know, how basically the Republicans, I mean, their policies are based in eugenics, right? I mean, the right. idea that people who don't have the right genes should basically all go die. And right. so fighting right. amongst each other on the left about, like, who's the most victimized and have you fully acknowledged your privilege? I don't know. I'm just not sure that that's right. what we should be doing at the moment. A couple things. Like, one, it it, it seems kind of absurd because if we're coming back to the notion of privilege and part of the thing that we object to about privilege is that certain people get special advantages. If all of a sudden you're saying, well, people who are privileged, I have no use for them. And unless they're willing to, to go martyr themselves, they're, they're useless. It seems like you're creating a whole, it's, it sounds like you're starting to create a whole nother set of imbalances in society that conceivably, or at least theoretically, we want to erase or we want to at least address. Mm -hmm. Two, I, I, you know, it's uh, this, this, uh, this, this, idea, this idea of shaming, you know, where, yeah, where does, it, where does it take you? Where do you go? And what if you're on the fence? What if you're, what if you're go back to your, you're the, you're the Jamie in your first years of university and you're starting to become aware of something, but then someone basically says, uh, you know, everything you, everything you got is due to privilege. It could it could potentially have the opposite effect, right, of what it's supposed to do. Is when you say acknowledge privilege, you're supposed to be going, okay, I have this, and now we can start to move forward. You could say, wait, I'm privileged. No, I'm not. Pri I'm not that privileged, and it could have you. It could backfire. Um, so yeah, I see, I see what you're saying. Um, it's, <laughs> it really, it really raises a lot of issues. And I think we, yeah, we, we, we're, we're in this, we're in this moment where, um, privilege is, again, it's like, it's this thing that rubs up against our idea of a, of a meritocracy. And, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know where we where we go with that or how we how we I mean well yeah you said it's sort of a, the the very notion of of a meritocracy or the very notions of of equality under the law are very much under threat right now so um it seems like it's counterproductive to be working to alienating people who might be who might be wanting to work for those for those uh for those goals um yeah i mean you talked about eugenics and i think that there is some of that underpinning with privilege, right? With with privileges, and the other thing we've, we we I wanted to talk. I'm going to talk about later in the in the show is is entitlements, and um, 
they are they are deep seated. They're they're long lasting. They go back. They predate any notion of a Western democracy, right? But they're still very much with us. Um, let's see. I think that's about all I had. Um, let's see. Um, what else did I want to? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. We'll, we'll wrap things up here. Um, is there anything else you want to say about privilege? Do you want to talk about elitism? <laughs> <laughs> oh, before we do that, I have one other thing I wanted to say to follow up with what you were saying. Is uh, if we can go back to that. Okay. So note note in the production here. We're going to go back to <clears throat> something else. Is else struck me when you were talking about acknowledging privilege and being an ally and the occasion the occasional harsh critique of that i do when it's not personal when i when i when i hear it it, it does make me think of problematic episodes where the the emphasis becomes on the person with privilege rather or the ally rather than the issue mm-hmm. and this is why i was going to play uh we're going to play uh Macklemore's white privilege and there's something about this song that makes me uneasy i mean if if you think of the ideal ally Macklemore would seem to be like the ideal ally he's tweeting kendrick lamar saying he deserves the emmy this whole song is built around him acknowledging his privilege and wanting to do everything he can to at this Black Lives Matter protest to lend whatever voice he has, but to not overshadow what they're doing. And yet that's essentially what what the song does in my reading of it. It it becomes about Macklemore, about Macklemore's white privilege, whereas ostensibly it's about his trying to help this movement. And yet somehow the focus always comes back to him. And um, so in that sense, I can see how some critics of allies or the sort of, or the, the, the I guess on the left, the, the finger pointing at the, the people with privilege stepping into to a protest movement. There is a tendency, and I'm just picking on Macklemore here, I think where the the person with privilege, it becomes a story about them rather than about the actual injustice. Yeah, and yeah. I, I agree with that. I mean, it's the same critique, essentially, uh, that was made of Adele um, when she gave the shout-out at the Grammys to Beyonce and Lemonade. Mm, I don't know if you right. were following yeah, that. Yeah. Um, and, like, I get those critiques, and I think they're completely valid. It's true. It does, then sort of still make it all about the white person, right? Mm-hmm. On the other hand, like, I feel like probably one of the results of Adele's doing that at the Grammys was that some Adele fans went out and bought lemonade, you know, and started to listen to Beyonce <laughs> and probably paid more attention to her politics. And I right. I wonder if some Macklemore fans went out and bought Kendrick Lamar. Like, I mean, on the one hand, you can critique them. And I think it's a valid critique. On the other hand, like, I don't really see that they're doing a lot of harm and maybe they're doing some good for some, you know, in relation to some people who you know, would never have bought Kendrick Lamar, never would have paid attention to Beyonce, right? Mm -hmm. So I guess I just, I I mean, I want to look for the positive in some of these gestures, even though I see 
their hierarchical mm-hmm. structure. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's just another thing where I just feel like you can find what's wrong with it, but you could also potentially find what's right well, with it. Well, well yeah. I mean, I, I mean, that's supposedly that's the hallmark of a of like a, a, a sophisticated person can you can hold balance two ideas and right. It's both one, and yeah, yeah. It's both <laughs> and yes. It's not like one has to be exclusive or mm-hmm. once you re- realize the critique, that's going to overshadow everything, and we can be completely dismissive of everything else. And yes, I totally agree with you. One more thing when you're talking about this moment where there's fascism or fascism light or proto-fascism or just ethno-nationalism, whatever. In fact, we could do a whole other show (laughs) (laughs) on on words to describe the Trump administration, nationalist, ethno-nationalist, whatever, fascist. Um, In fact, oh, that's coming soon. Um, Lost my train of thought. Yes. Uh, oh, with with when when we're describing that moment and that the resistance and what you call the resistance to that to that moment, it's it makes me think of a one of my favorite books is um, Homage to Catalonia. If, you, if you've ever read it, no. Orwell or George Orwell, I feel like he could be writing about 2017 United States. Actually, he was writing about 1937 Spain, and he went as a as a Briton, he went to work for the common cause of defeating fascism. Franco had invaded Spain and it sounded like this is the common cause that unites all of us on the left. And he was he was kind of this weird at the time. He was kind of like a narco socialist guy. Um, but there were also, you know, um, Communist Party members, there was Social Democrats, liberals. They all came together to fight fascism. Anarchists all came together to fight fascism. But the thing that comes through in, in homage to Catalonia is not the un- the united fight against fascism and how that brought people together for this common cause. It's basically a story about how everyone on the left started shooting at each other. Mm-hmm. And part of the, the reason the united front against fascism in 1930s Spain was never was not able, despite larger numbers and larger international solidarity to defi- defeat Franco, was that they just fought each other. And, and then so- Franco was in power for what, like 40, 40 years? For the next 40 years yeah. because the, the, the socialists hated the communists and the communists thought that the socialists weren't good Marxists and the, and the anarchists thought they were all replicating structures of bourgeois, um, pow- bourgeois power structures. And they just basically, they literally shot each other. And <laughs> so you everybody know, wants the moral high ground. Right? Everyone wants the moral high ground. And not that's that true. I think we should dismiss morality. Right. Mm-hmm. But everybody it's that self-righteousness like of mm-hmm. being right, of being sometimes the victim and therefore mm-hmm. having that moral high ground. And it feels really good. But I mean, as the Franco case illustrates, mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily accomplish anybody's goals, right? And right. it allows people like Trump and Bannon and, you know, to move forward with their agenda while we're fighting with each we're other. Fighting, and we're fighting with each other. I'm right. not saying we shouldn't critique, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, it's important mm-hmm. to re- retain or um, continue to be self-reflexive and self-aware and all those right. things. But right. maybe it's a, maybe it's a matter of tone, right? And not that I don't, you know, there's all this stuff about like, you know, white people should get used to being uncomfortable and things like that. You know, privileged people should deal with discomfort and that's fine. Um, but on the other hand, like it just, it, it's still, I'm not sure that that is again, where we're going to make progress together towards shared goals, even if we don't have sort of the same level of consciousness. Right, right. right. Yeah. 
difficult question. Yeah. You wanted to talk about elitism? Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this is sort of another branch of this issue of privilege, right? Because, um, I mean, just particularly in the American context right now, the sort of cries of elitism towards the left, right, coming from the right, were, they were a big part of the campaign. Right. Um, yes, yes. And, you know, I was really struck by the fact that there was so much rage against basically the educated elite, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And no rage at all against Trump himself for, you know, having been born into absurd amounts of wealth and basically benefited off of that his whole life without, I mean, he, you know, he was not, he's not even a good businessman, you know, Mm -hmm. like his father put up the money for him. He's many of his companies have gone bankrupt. He had to be bailed out by his daddy. I mean, you know, he's had, I mean, he's the ultimate in privilege, right? Although he, of course, still feels like a victim, right? He's always right. whining on Twitter. Um, and, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by this tension between these two definitions of the elite, right? The ultra-rich who never worked, and this goes back to this question of merit and hard work, right? You know, who never hard, worked hard to get where they got. They just were born into it. Um, And then the educated elite, who some of those people were born into a certain degree of privilege. But, you know, I mean, to get an education, a good education, like, at least theoretically, you probably have to work pretty hard. I mean, you know, sure, some people get into elite institutions because they buy their way in. So that's a sort of crossover between, you know, the wealth, the wealthy elite and the educated elite. Right. That makes makes me think of a former uh, Republican president who said, uh, you know, George W. Bush, I think at his commencement speech for Yale, said, oh, you see minus students, I'm proof that you too can succeed. Right. <laughs> or you see, yeah, like the, <clears throat> edu- I mean, he got into, it's Yale, obviously, uh, elite school, and, um, but not, uh, yeah, I mean, it ties into the, the anti-intellectualism right. of, yeah, it's 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 interesting that our our notions of privilege and elitism are are in a way they're kind of intertwined, right? Because an elite is by definition someone who's privileged. Right. And but... yet and yet to be to be an intellectual elite one has to actually go and do the work. Mm-hmm. Whereas financial elites often they just have to maintain this enormous amount of capital they were given. I, I mean, I don't want to pit one against another because I, I think that you know it depends on how you define it. But it's interesting this this discourse, this anti elitism that always runs through American politics, uh, and it's been through American politics for 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 forever, um, bumping up against the notion of privilege, which in a lot of ways is is could be seen as similar, but but. But the, the the people, the Trumps and the George Bushes of the world that that uh, use every opportunity they can to to denounce the elites are not denouncing privilege. It's so strange. And yet the kinds of the kinds of elites that that uh, like you're saying, like the kinds of like some elites actually got to the elite because they actually worked hard to do it. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I think that's where there's a lot of confusion for me about um, about sort of the privileged elite, because, I mean, particularly in terms of education, 
you, you know, to, to get to the top of that intellectual leap, you have to work hard. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there is still a degree of meritocracy there. Mm-hmm. And sure, there are all kinds of other structural things in play as well. Um, but I don't know. I guess it's a sort of confusion of class privilege mm. with... I don't know, I guess educational privilege, but it's not just privilege. I don't know. I don't really have an answer to this one, um, but it's something I'm really interested in because, I mean, on the other hand, the idea of like, you know, if you go into business and work hard and make a lot of money, that's very positive in sort of contemporary American rhetoric, right? Um, but if you go into any non-businessy kind of occupation, then your work is devalued um, right. as elitist in some way. And I don't know. I mean, I guess, it's, I guess it's the success of Republican or conservative rhetoric, which is just business, 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 economy, money, capitalism. Right, but, but at the same time, not acknowledging the kinds of affordances, the, the advantages that one would be given to just to be able to have the credit history to start the business, yeah. the connections to start the loan, the... The, the social networks that you need, um, you know, it's I, I this podcast. We're talking about podcasts we listen to. I mean, I, this podcast blew me away. It's this three part series on on the media about poverty and depictions of poverty in America, and how insanely misguided the perception of poverty is in the collective mm-hmm. imagination and popular culture and American mythology. Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Okay. That sort of thing. And the actual realities of poverty is just absolutely striking. Uh, it's it's shocking, actually. I mean, one of the statistics I remember that I can't seem to forget is 47%, almost half of Americans could not come up with $400 for an emergency if they needed to today. So they had a, and of course, because uh, the United States is, uh, has a private healthcare system. A lot of this could, these could be a medical emergencies. Your car breaks down. Nearly half of Americans would have to get some kind of loan, right? And so this notion that that um, so we so we have all these competing mythologies, I guess. And this is why maybe we'll head to a wrap up here is competing mythologies around privilege and elitism and and enti- we didn't even talk about entitlements. I was going to get to entitlements and how. Um, they, they sort of often, the myths bump up against the realities. Um, uh, we, we try to form coalitions, and yet we hurl um, accusations, or not accusations, but labels at one another that may be only partially true when we talked about the issue, for example, of privilege and how it may be, you may be privileged in one sense and not privileged in another. And there's no room for that extended, sometimes awkward, but extended and, and and complex conversation, which I think we're having right now. <laughs> so on that note, I really think, thank you so much, Jamie, for joining me. I just thank think, that, I think this is the kind of conversation I wish more people had, but I'm really happy that you joined us. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Hi, my name is Daniel. And the word that I learned, and I guess, after the presidential uh, presidential election became a thing was fake news i guess as an outsider looking in in the Cana- being in canada watching the us election i kind of rely on the news to give me 
most of the information that I take day to day and how I kind of view my world around me. And the fact that a president wants to use the media as a tool, a way to keep people in fear and to change what they think about the news kind of scares the hell out of me. Hi, my name is Madeline, and um, the acronym that I've been using since the U.S. presidential election has been MAGA, which is Make America Great Again. And this is what Donald Trump says, like, all the time. Like, that's, that's his campaign logo, and that's, like, what he's all about. And to me, it's really funny because I don't think there was ever a time that America was great hello my name is mark and the term that i've heard a lot and that comes to my mind from the last presidential election is drain the swamp and that uh, donald trump used that to tell his supporters while he was campaigning that he would um, eliminate the bureaucracy and the corruption and government waste in Washington. Old shells are highly prized. And this one is occupied by a sarcastic fringe. Welcome back to Word Salad from CJSR 88.5 in Edmonton. I'm your host, Russell Cobb, and this last section is called Last Bites. Last Bites is where I give you some little bits to think about. And I was thinking for Trump Talk, this episode we're doing is about the way Trump's rise has affected the way we talk to each other. I thought I'd just share some, some words I've collected. Okay, now, this is unadulterated, unedited, unexpurgated stuff from uh, feedback I've gotten from from uh, a call I put out. I said, okay, so what is one word you had never heard before last year's election and now is in your vocabulary? It's for research purposes. Okay, so here we go. I'm just going to read you <clears throat> some of these words. This is what people said. Quizzling, cuck, bigly, Antifa, recused, cafefe, lawyer up, fake news, coffee fee, huge, pepe, based, payday, pizzagate, maga, keck, alt left, cacistocracy, libtard, snowflake, p tape, social justice warriors, white nationalists, alternative facts, tremendous. Antifa, Bad Hombres, Mueller, hugely the base, his base, Sigint, Dumpster Fire, Respectability Politics, IRL, MRA, Antifa, Virtue Signaling, White Working Class, 45, The Red Pill, The Orange One, Loser, bad, weak, Trumpian, trumpet, Trumpista, nasty woman, alternative facts, 
Privileges, disgust, fear, backwards, purposeful ignorance. Casuistry and compromat. Gaslighting, flying monkeys, malignant narcissism, toxic masculinity, the fourth turning, alt-right and poorly educated, post-truth, kafifi, alt-right, democracy, Eminitize the eschaton? Okay, that last one I think was a little made up. Okay, so that was just a few words that I received when I said, what is one word that you've heard since the election of Trump that you had not, uh, that had not been in your vocabulary before? That's what we got. So if you got your words, if you got words you want to shoot at me to let us uh, explore what they mean, where they come from, their etymologies, their twists and turns, their interesting histories. We're happy to do it. That's what we do here at Word Salad. We bring you the hidden histories of words and we ask whether we speak language or whether language speaks us. So what's one word that you didn't know before Trump's election that you now know? It's pretty hard to say, but I'd say that I actually, I'd say it's, well, everything, every, every Spanish word I learned before with Eli was in grade one. Yeah. Oh, so a Spanish word, can you remember one? Hola. Hola. That's a good word. Okay. Henry, what's a new word for you? Uh, uh, I'm sure I don't know, but I'm kind of sure that it kind of disappoints to me. Disappoints? Is that your new word? Okay. Disappoints. What's one word that you not heard before the election of Trump that you hear now? Can I say a term or does it have to be a single word? The term's fine. Term is fine. Um, I'm sure there's lots and lots and lots. But I, probably the one that I think about the most now that I did not um, know of before is the term white nationalist. I never heard that used before. Before it was obviously racists and white supremacists and Nazis and KKK and um, <clears throat> I'm sure there's a few others that kind of fall into that same basket. But the but sort of separating out all of the um, the sort of specifically um, like um, uh, what am I trying to say like the specifically um, like the particular uh, characteristics of each of those groups, well, the thing they all have in common is that they are aiming for a, a white nation. Like, and get rid of the blacks and the Mexicans and the Jews and the gays and, um, and the Muslims for sure. And, and they, they want a country based on what's left behind, ignoring the fact that, of course, it was all of the contributions from those groups that created the country that they now know. But anyways, I feel like that term gets used a lot and um, it wasn't one that I'd, I really ever heard used before the election. Do you remember where you first heard it? I do not. I feel like 
it's gotten most use post Charlottesville, um, for sure, because you know with Unite the Right, it's like they made it pretty clear what the common thread was through their you know all of their um, their uh, imperatives, but. Um, Certainly, it was in the context. It would have been in the context of Steve Bannon and Breitbart News and um, the alt right and um, the rise of that that ugly um, and previously silenced faction in the American right. All right, that's the Cobb family. Uh, you heard August, and then Henry, and then Rachel on their new words. I like video games. Any other final thoughts, August? I like video games. Okay, great. And I want to have desserts. Special shout out this week to Diana Chan Jurado, my former assistant producer who is now a CGSR intern. Thank you, Diana. You're amazing. Congratulations on the internship. I know you're going to do a wonderful job. To all my students from LAST 311 who volunteered to give me their takes, to the entire Cobb family, Rachel, Henry, and August, and to everyone on Facebook who is willing to give me their thoughts. All right, well, we'll see you next time. Tweet at me at Scissortail74 or find us on Facebook at Word Salad CJSR. And until next time, word up. Russell back again here with Word Salad. We got a little, we got time for a little bonus segment. And in this bonus segment, hopefully I'm going to do something that helps you learn just what Trump does sometimes with language. He does something really interesting. Now, I'm not saying he does it all the time, but he does it pretty often. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that he's a bad speaker, but generally we know he's a bad speaker. Do you see what I just did there? Do you, do you see that? That that I said this, but I'm not saying this. I'm not saying this thing, but I'm saying this thing. There's actually a term for it. It's called paralipsis. It's a Greek term. It comes from para, which means side, and lapen, which is to leave. Now, this is something I discovered through a communications prefer- professor. Her name is Jennifer Mercieca. She's at Texas A&M. And she studies communication. So she actually noticed that Trump did this thing um, from rhetoric that is not actually that, that common anymore because it's just so contradictory. It basically makes your head spin. It's to say one thing and then to say the exact opposite. So you basically leave the speaker wondering, what are you actually saying? What do you actually Believe. I'm just going to read a little bit from her from her article that I discovered on theconversation.com, and it's titled "How Donald Trump Gets Away with Saying Other Thing, uh, Gets Away with Saying Things Other Candidates Can't." So she says, "Quote: The art of rhetoric or persuasive communication can include any number of forms: speeches, essays, tweets, images, films, and more. 
Paralipsis is a Greek term that translates to leave to the side. It's thought to be an ironic way for a speaker to say two things at once. Now, little interjection here from me, which is kind of interesting, right? Because one of the things that people say they like about him is that he just tells it like it is, that he's uncensored, that he is just going to say what's on his mind. Well, paralipsis, you're literally saying one thing and then it's op- the opposite. Let me return to uh, Mercieka here in her article. She says, quote, for example, say you wanted to imply that your coworker takes too many coffee breaks without actually accusing him of wasting time at work. You might say something like, I'm not saying he drinks more coffee than anyone else at the office, but every time I go to the break room, he's in there. And you might also shrug and make a something seems kind of off facial expression. Paralipsis is a powerful rhetorical device because it can also allow someone to make a false accusation or spread a false rumor while skirting consequences. Fake news. So anyway, just wanted to uh, leave you with a final note a rhetorical note, paralipsis. So next time somebody says to you, now I'm not saying he's the worst president ever, but he's kind of the worst president ever. You can say, ha ha, nice use of paralipsis. Once again, this has been Word Salad from Edmonton, Alberta, CGSR 88.5 FM. Please send us your thoughts. Please keep making our language wonderful. Yes, in fact, why don't we just go ahead and say it? Make our language great again. Thank you. Thanks for listening. And see you next month. Bye-bye.